Hey guys. Hey Jim. Woo! What's up? I'm doing, I'm doing great. I'm doing fantastic. I feel like I haven't seen y'all back here in a while. So it's nice to, nice to be here with you. Um, since having another baby, you know, I've been going to Awanas with my, my two sons. So I've kind of, you know, kind of been watching from a distance as I take the videos from Wednesday nights and put them on the YouTube page and all that, all that good jazz. But I'm excited to actually be here with you. And we are in um, this series called The Emmaus Road. And um, before we sort of jump into the book of Exodus, I wanted to take a moment to talk about why we're doing this series. Um, so first and foremost, the reason we're doing this series is because we want you to be equipped with the tools that you need to rightly handle God's word. Um, we live in an age of, uh, of experts. Have you all noticed this? Uh, and, and really, we live in the age of the cult of the experts. Uh, basically, if you want to speak to anything, if you want to have an opinion on anything, you first and foremost have to be an expert about it, right? Isn't that what you always hear? Uh, you have a question about uh, certain policies that politicians are trying to push, and you have you know, what seems like a common sense question that you want to ask, um, and as soon as you ask it, somebody goes, well, we talked to the experts, and this is what they said. They said this is the best thing to do, right? So essentially, you can't have an opinion on that. Or you have an opinion about certain medical procedures and how they're carried out and the efficacy of such medical procedures. And immediately, what do we hear? Well, you're not a medical expert, so you can't speak to that. And sadly, this mindset, right, this idea of the cult of the experts has made its way into the church as well. And a lot of people, a lot of Christians in churches have this idea that you can't say anything about what's in this Bible unless you're an expert. Go see a, an expert theologian. Go see a pastor. He's a professional Christian. He's the one that can tell you what's in this book. You can't have an opinion on that. Sorry. And that is simply not true. That is absolutely not true. First and foremost, it's not true because God gave us his word so that we could know it and understand it and come to know him. And to say that you can't come to know the God who's revealed himself in this word without some sort of expert is essentially to say that God's not capable of communicating clearly to you. And he needs some human agent to stand in the gaps, to stand in between uh, him and you as he communicates to make it clear for you. And that's just not true. That's the, uh, it, you, what you end up doing is sliding God, saying, sorry, God, you're not good enough to speak to me. I need an expert to sort of be the go-between. Um, but not only that, but if you are a believer, if you've been indwelt with the Holy Spirit, you have the Holy Spirit illuminating this word to you, right? And again, if you say, well, I need an expert to tell me what the book says, and that, again, you're sliding God. You're insulting God by saying, your Holy Spirit's not enough. I need another expert, right? And that's simply not the case, right? God has spoken clearly in his word. We have what we need to know who he is. And not only that, but if you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you and you have the ability to come to read this word, to come to understand it and to know how to apply it correctly. OK, so that's why we're doing this series, because we want to cut through that idea that you need some sort of expert to explain to you what's in this book. You don't. God can speak clearly enough. OK, so that's, does that mean that, uh, you know, theologians and pastors are, you know, not helpful or not beneficial in certain ways? No, of course not. Um, certainly, if you've spent any time with somebody who's been a Christian longer than you have, you know that there's wisdom with the experience. There's wisdom with the study that pastors have gone through uh, uh, to, to get to the positions that they're, they're in. And so we don't want to devalue the work that they've done, but do, are they absolutely necessary to know what's in this word? No. God has spoken clearly, and he can communicate clearly to you as well. And so that's why we're doing this series. And so before we jump into the book of Exodus, I wanted to hit real quick on just a couple of things we need to have in our minds as we approach the scriptures, okay? 
the first thing we need to have, there's sort of a fundamental foundational presupposition, assumption that we need to have as we approach the Bible, okay? And there's really two of them. The first one is that the Bible is first and foremost about God, okay? It's first and foremost about God. I'm sorry to tell you, it is not about you, okay? A lot of people, when they read the Bible, they try to find themselves in the Bible. It's not about you. It's about God. And yes, we do read stories, like particularly in the book of Exodus. We're going to read about this, uh, this particular people group um, known as Israel. And yeah, it's about them. But in a greater sense, it's not just about them. It's about God. It's telling us about who he is and about what he has done. So that's the first thing we need to understand is that it's about God. It's not about us. Not only is it not about us, but it's not, this book was not written to us. Okay? This is something we have to understand as we approach the Bible. It wasn't written to us. It's written for us, but it wasn't written to us, right? And we have to understand this distinction very, very, uh, very clearly if we're going to understand the Bible correctly. Uh, a good illustration that I like to use is the famous Jeremiah 29, 11. You know, I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. You see that tattooed on everybody's arms. You see wall art hanging in everybody's houses with this verse on it. Everybody posted as their graduation, you know, verse as their life verse and everything. Um, but it... it but, but that was not written to you. That was written to somebody else. Now, it's written for you, but if you're going to understand how it applies for you, you first need to understand who it was written to. Okay, does that make sense? Do we understand that? So it's about God. It's not about us. And it wasn't written to us, but it is written for us. All right, if we understand that, we can start to approach this Bible and understand it correctly. And so that's the first thing. The Bible's not about us. It's about God, first and foremost. It is about God. The second thing that we need to understand is that the Bible centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ, okay? It's about God, and it centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ, okay? Um, and this, is a, a, this, uh, this highlights for us sort of the important difference between Eastern and Western ways of thinking and Eastern and Western uh, literature. Um, you all know that Christianity is not a Western religion, Right? Although, in a, in a formative sense, Christianity has had the greatest impact on Western culture and Western societies, Christianity is not a Western religion. It's an Eastern religion. It has origins in the Middle East. This book that we're reading is not a Western book. It's an Eastern book. And so we have to understand sort of the differences in between the uh, Eastern way of thinking and the Western way of thinking, and the Eastern way of putting thinking into writing and the Western way of putting thinking into writing. Um, and so the, the main difference, right, that we're going to see between Eastern literature and Western literature is that Western literature is very linear, right? The way I like to illustrate this is like a five-paragraph essay. Y'all know the five-paragraph essay, right? What are the three parts of a five-paragraph essay? You've got intro, body, conclusion, right? So you've got intro, body, conclusion. You've got a beginning, a middle, and an end. And that's the way we write in Western thought, Right? We start at the beginning, we work our way through the middle, and we reach the end. That's not the way Eastern literature is, is, is laid out primarily. Okay? That doesn't mean you won't find linear thinking in Eastern thought, and, and you won't find sort of that sort of linear pattern in, in Eastern thinking. But primarily, Eastern literature will not have a beginning, middle, end, a, an intro, body, and a conclusion like the way Western literature does. But instead, the way Eastern literature is, is laid out is it'll have sort of a central idea Okay? And everything in the literature will sort of be hitting at that central idea from different aspects. Okay? Does that make sense? 
And so what, what seems to be disconnected right, in the literature is actually connected by, connected by the central idea that it's all pointing to. All right? And the central idea of the Bible is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Right? So we read in Genesis right, about the creation of the world, and we read about this man, Abraham, and then um, we read a book like, uh, like Job. Job is completely disconnected from Abraham. But if we understand Jesus as the central idea, we see that, okay, Job is sort of pointing to the central idea just from a different aspect. And then we get to books like Leviticus that have to do with the law. And we're going, what am I supposed to do with all these crazy laws in this book of Leviticus? You need to understand the central idea if you're going to understand the book, right? So when we look at books like Leviticus, we need to understand, okay, it's pointing me to something. It's pointing me to a central idea. These books seem disconnected, right? It seems like some of them are connected and others aren't. Some of them seem out of place. You have to understand the central idea that's tying all of these books together is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Nod your heads, yes or no. So I know you're, okay, good, good. So I know you're with me. Okay, so those are the two things we need to approach the scriptures, okay? We need to understand that it's about God, first and foremost, and that it centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ, okay? Which brings us to the Emmaus Road, okay? So we've titled the uh, series Emmaus Road, and Josh kind of hit on this last week uh, a little bit, but I want to um, just kind of reiterate this point for us. So we read about the uh, Emmaus Road in Luke chapter 24, uh, just to sort of recap, right, Jesus died, he rises from the dead, he has a couple disciples who are heading to Emmaus, and they're talking, and Jesus appears, and he shows himself, and he, uh, uh, he keeps them from recognizing him, and he's walking with them on the road to Emmaus, and, and we read um, in verse 27, right, he says, uh, or excuse me, in verse 25, he says, uh, O foolish ones, uh, and slow of heart to believe all of that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And then here comes the key verse, right, in, in verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, that's basically all of the scriptures. Beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Okay? So this principle, right, of seeing Christ, of seeing Christ as the central idea, we get that straight from Jesus. Okay? And it's important to note, too, that when it says that Jesus, um, when it says that he interpreted to them all the things, or in, in all of the scriptures, the things concerning himself, he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. There were no New Testament scriptures at this point, right? Of course, we see Jesus in the Gospels. Of course, we see Jesus because all of the epistles refer to him, but there was no New Testament. The scriptures that Jesus took were the Old Testament books, and he explained that these Old Testament books, they're about me. Okay, so sometimes it's very intimidating to approach the Old Testament, but if we have that in our mindset, if we have that, that understanding that Christ is the central idea, and that Jesus took these books and said, no, no, let me show you how these things point to me, then we can come to understand the Old Testament rightly. Okay, are y'all tracking with me? Good deal. All right, so that brings us to the book of Exodus, okay? So the book of Exodus obviously comes after the book of Genesis, um, and I want to start by um, um, sort of uh, setting the stage for understanding this book correctly, okay? The first thing we need to understand is that this book is very significant in what's known as redemptive history. And when we say redemptive history, we're simply talking about the things that God has done to redeem his people throughout history, right? So redemptive history began in the garden, and redemptive history is continuing until Christ returns, right? So your salvation is part of redemptive history, 
right? Because it's God redeeming his people, right? So that's what we're talking about in redemptive history. And Exodus in particular is very significant in redemptive history. As we see in the New Testament, there's a lot of things that are referenced in this book of Exodus, particularly uh, with the Passover being the most, um, the most famous. But not only is this book redemptive history, okay? Not only is it redemptive history, it's actual history as well, okay? The things that took place in this book actually happened. And I know that's, in, in this room, it doesn't seem controversial to say that, but there's a lot of people who will try to tell you that what happened in this book, maybe it didn't really happen. It was just kind of a, a, just a nice story to kind of illustrate some stuff. You know, it was just an allegory, uh, but it's not actual history. No, no, what happened in this book is actual history, okay? What happened in this book is actual history. It's not, it's, it's not an allegory, okay? Um, it's so much more than just actual history, but it is, in fact, actual history, okay? So with that, what we're going to start with is we're going to start with a, a sort of historical overview of the book of Exodus, and we're going to go through the timeline, basically, of the events that took place in the Exodus. That's the first thing we're going to do. And so to start, I wanted to read for us uh, the first seven verses of the book of Exodus. And here's what we read in the opening verses of Exodus. We read this. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Sebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So what's happening in these first uh, few verses, okay, is this, these first few verses are helping us set the context for this book, okay? Specifically, uh, it's tying us back to the events that took place in the previous book, which was? Genesis, Genesis right. And so it's tying us back to the events in Genesis. And what was the big covenantal event that took place in Genesis? Well, okay, you have creation. But specifically, what was the big covenantal event? Who said it? Abraham, right? God's covenant with Abraham. So what, one of the things you have to understand about the people of Israel is that the people of Israel... Uh, everything about their nation, everything about their culture, everything about their beliefs, all goes back to the patriarch Abraham. I mean, you even read the New Testament, and when Jesus was arguing with the Pharisees, what did he say to the Pharisees? He said, um, or what did the Pharisees say to him? They said, we're children of Abraham, right? Everything goes back to Abraham. And so what this book is doing, what these opening verses are doing, is it's tying us back to the story that was beginning uh, in Genesis, the story of the patriarch Abraham. And specifically, not only is it tying itself to that covenant God made with Abraham, but it's almost in a way saying that, I am, that this book is continuing that story, right? So we were introduced to the patriarch Abraham. We saw God's covenant with him, and this book is continuing that story of God's covenant with Abraham. Does that make sense? Okay, so the first thing we need to understand, you can go ahead and go to that next slide, is that uh, in terms of timeline, okay, at the end of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 46, we have Israel coming to Egypt, okay? Israel comes to Egypt in uh, Genesis 46. Um, Israel is another name for Jacob. Y'all understand that, right? And that's where the nation of Israel gets its name. And so Israel comes to Egypt. Do you remember why they went to Egypt? There's, there was a famine, right? There's a famine in the land, and they came to Egypt. Why did they come to Egypt, though? 
Was there somebody in Egypt who brought them there? Well, God, yes. But was there maybe a brother who was sold into slavery in Egypt and rose to power? Seriously? Y'all don't know? Joseph. Thank you. Yeah, so Joseph was in Egypt, right? His brother sold him into slavery into Egypt. He ends up rising to power in Egypt. And we read at the end of Genesis, right? Um, uh, 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 after uh, Jacob dies, uh, Joseph's brothers were concerned that, okay, now that our dad's dead, Joseph is going to kill us. And he said, no, 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 what you meant for evil, God meant for good to bring about the salvation of many, right? And so they came to Egypt because that's where Joseph was. And Joseph had risen to power. And Joseph had known about the famine and he was prepared for it. And so he brought all of Israel to Egypt in order to save them from this famine. And that's where the book of Exodus picks up, right? After Israel has come to Egypt, we see uh, that Israel grows in number. That's what we read in Exodus 1.17. And then the next thing that we see is that Israel becomes enslaved, right? And we see that in verses 8 through 14. We, see, we find out there's a Pharaoh who rose up in the land of Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he was intimidated and scared uh, by the, the sort of multitude of Israel and said, we need to do something about this great people. They're going to ba basically overthrow us one day if we don't do something. So they enslave Israel, right? That's how Israel ends up in slavery. And then we read uh, that despite their oppression, right, despite them being enslaved, right, we find out in Exodus 1.12 that God continues to bless Israel despite that. We find out the more that they were oppressed, the more they grew in number, right? So despite, despite what Egypt was doing, God was still fulfilling his promise to Abraham to make him the father of a great nation. It was growing this nation of Israel. And so again, moving on, the Pharaoh decides, I got to do something about this, right? He says, these people, no matter how much I oppress them, they're continuing to grow in number. And so what does he do? He begins to kill the male babies. And we see that uh, in Exodus 1, 15 through 22. So then he starts to kill the male babies. And this is really just setting the stage for this primary figure in the book of Exodus, and that is Moses. And we read about Moses starting in chapter 2. We see that with um, the Pharaoh wanting to kill all of the male babies, there is this Hebrew mother who has a baby and she doesn't want to kill him. She doesn't want him to die. So what does she do? Huh? Yeah, put him in a basket and put him in the river. Send him on the river. And he ends up being saved from destruction, right? He should have died. He was supposed to die because that's what Pharaoh had decreed, that all the male babies were, were to be slaughtered. But, somehow, but, but he saved, right? And you can go to the next slide. And after he's saved, we find out that he grows up in Pharaoh's household, that Pharaoh's daughter finds him in the river and raises, her, or raises him as her own, all right? And then moving on very quickly, because the whole point of this, right, is to set the stage for what God is about to do with this nation of Israel. And so... After Moses grows up in Pharaoh's household, we find out that Moses, uh, he, he grew up and he ends up killing a man. He sees an Egyptian guard beating a Hebrew slave and he kills him. He kills the Egyptian guard and becomes a fugitive. So he leaves Egypt and ends up in, in this no-name farm town of Midian. And while he's in Midian, right, he uh, you know, ends up taking a wife, ends up becoming a, a shepherd, ends up caring uh, for animals, and he's commissioned by God to go and deliver his people Israel. And we see that again starting in Exodus 2, 23 through 4, 17. And what's the famous story where God calls Moses? Uh, well, he does split the Red Sea. But before that, how does God call Moses? The burning bush, right? So in this section where God is commissioning 
uh, Moses to go and deliver his people. That's where we see the burning bush, right? And there's some very, very uh, interesting and very um, important theology that's packed into God's revelation in the bush, right? And so it's important to, to take a look at that. But we're trying to push through the sort of timeline, the overview of the book of Exodus. So God commissions Moses, and then Moses returns to Egypt, and he does many signs and many wonders in Egypt, Right? And we see that covers a whole bunch of chapters, about seven chapters, from 4.18 all the way through 11.10. And that includes right, this, um, the, the, these many signs and wonders, includes uh, his interaction with Janus and Jambres, the Egyptian mu- uh, magicians in Pharaoh's court, as well as the plagues that were leveled against uh, the Egyptians. And just real quick to run through those plagues, right? How many plagues were there? Ten. Ten, that's correct. So we've got the Nile turning to blood. We've got frogs. We've got gnats. We've got flies. The Egyptian livestock die. We have uh, boils breaking out on the Egyptians. We have hail. We have locusts. And then we have darkness covering all of Egypt. And there's an important thing that happens, right, uh, in the plague of the flies. Is that when uh, God brings this, uh, this fourth plague of the flies, he says, at this, at this point, I'm going to separate Goshen. I'm going to set Goshen apart where my people Israel are. And the rest of these plagues that come are not going to affect my people uh, Israel. And so you see flies, you see livestock dying, you see boils, you see hail, you see locusts, and you even see darkness covering all of Egypt except this land of Goshen where God's people are. So he protects his people from the wrath that he's leveling against the Egyptians. And then the most famous portion of the book of Exodus, we have the Passover in Exodus chapter 12. And just real quick to sort of give you sort of a quick overview of the Passover, and we'll come back to this um, here in a little bit, but... Essentially, the 10th plague, right? What was the 10th plague? Does anyone remember? Say that again. Yeah, the death angel, right? Uh, the, uh, um, the destroyer comes through the land and, just, and kills the firstborn in all of Egypt. And what did, the, what did Israel have to do to protect themselves from this destroyer? Yeah, they had to put the lamb's blood on their doorposts, right? And when the lamb saw the blood, the lamb passed over their house, which is where we get um, the name Passover, and the Passover, again, is very important for redemptive history, but also for Jewish history. Um, as, as we know that the Passover was a feast that was celebrated throughout the rest of Jewish history, continuing even till today. They still celebrate the Passover every year. And so we see the Passover, we see the death of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, and then we have the Exodus, right? Which is where the book gets its name, where Israel leaves Egypt. And really that covers a significant portion of um, of the book all the way up to the uh, crossing of the Red Sea, which we'll see here in just a second. You can go to that next one for me. All right, so we see uh, that in chapter 13, we see that God continues to lead his people out of Egypt, right? They're leaving Egypt, and God just doesn't take them out of Egypt and say, cool, you're on your own, figure it out. No, he continues to lead them by a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud, fire by night and cloud by day. And then they get to the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's armies are pursuing them. And they cross through the Red Sea, right? And really, after they cross through the Red Sea, we don't hear about Egypt really in their story anymore. I mean, you, you hear about Egypt elsewhere in the scripture. But Egypt as a major adversary to Israel is really unheard of after God deals this, you know, essentially death blow to the nation of Egypt. And really, at that time, Egypt was, was probably the greatest single civilization, the greatest single power and they have never risen back to that place ever again since God dealt with them. Um, so after they cross through the Red Sea, we see God uh, leading and continuing to sustain his people. 
Um, specifically, uh, in chapters uh, 16 and 17, we read about the bread coming from heaven, right? God provides food for them just out of nowhere from heaven. Um, and then he also provides water from them for a rock, right? Moses goes and touches a rock and out comes water, right? God miraculously sustains his people after they leave Egypt. And then in chapter 19, the people meet with God on Mount Sinai and God begins uh, the process of establishing his covenant with his people, right? And so we're continuing the covenant that God made with Abraham, but he makes a, a covenant with Israel, also known as the Sinaitic Covenant or the Sinai Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant. And really, so God establishes his covenant. And then in chapters 20 through 24, uh, we see uh, the giving of the law. Uh, one thing you have to understand about a covenant, okay? A covenant is basically a formal agreement, right? Essentially, it's a formal agreement. It's a contract between two or more parties. And with every... Um, with every covenant, there comes terms of that covenant, or there comes a law, right? Uh, even, even, you know, what we don't call covenants today, but even just contracts. How, how many of you have ever taken out a loan, for instance? I know y'all kind of know the process a little bit, right? Yeah. Well, when you take out a loan from the bank, you, you're agreeing to borrow money from the bank and pay it back, right? But there's terms to that agreement. There's a law that governs how the parties within this contract are going to operate towards one another. It's the same thing with a covenant. When God makes a covenant with anybody, there always comes covenant law. There always has to be a covenant law. It's a formal agreement between two or more parties. It's a formal agreement between God and his people. And there's terms of how God is going to interact with his people and how his people are to interact with him. What was one of the significant things about God's covenant with Abraham? Do y'all remember? Right, right. In the story with Abraham, right, uh, the way covenants were ratified is they split animals and then they walk through the split pieces of the animal as a way of symbolically saying, what, what, let what happens to me or what, let what happened to these animals happen to me if I break the terms of this covenant. But what happened in God's covenant with Abraham? He is the one who walked through the animals. Abraham didn't, right? So there were covenant terms. There was a covenant law. There, was a, there were terms that governed how God and Abraham were going to interact. And what did God say? He says, I'm going to take all those terms upon myself. I am going to be responsible for failing my end as well as your end. And not only that, but I'm also going to take upon myself the punishment for violating, for you violating your end and for me violating my end, which we know God cannot do. Okay? So every time there's a covenant, God gives covenant law. And we see that he gives his law and that the covenant is confirmed. And then uh, after that, we see God beginning to prepare a place, uh, the place of his dwelling, preparing his dwelling place amongst his people. And after that, you can go to that next one. After God, after they start beginning uh, preparations for building the tabernacle, we have the famous incident with the golden calf, right? Y'all remember this one, right? Uh, the people were upset. Moses was taking too long. They didn't like his timing. And so they told Aaron, like, uh, you need to do something. So Aaron said, give me all your gold. He threw it in a fire and out came a calf, right? Just happened to come out, or at least that's what Aaron says. Do any of you believe that? No. So they make this golden calf and they say, and, and Aaron says, here are your gods that delivered you from Egypt. Imagine that, right? Israel could not do anything to save themselves. But once they are saved, they go and make something and say, this, is, this thing that I made is the thing that delivered you. Like it's absolutely absurd. 
So we have this incident with the golden calf, and we see that uh, Israel sinned. And then in chapters 33 and 34, um, we see that Moses intercedes for Israel despite their sin, right? God, God at this point is like, I'm just going to go ahead and wipe them off the face of the earth. And Moses intercedes. He stands in the gap for Israel and says, no, no, remember the covenant that you made with our fathers, with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And for the sake of the covenant you made with them, please don't do this thing. We see that God relents from the disaster he was bringing upon the people. And not only that, but he renews his covenant with Israel. And then after that, uh, in Exodus 35, we see God continuing the preparation for his dwelling place. We see the people of Israel building the tabernacle, building all of the elements that would go into the tabernacle um, so that God could dwell with his people. And then the book of Exodus ends with God, God's presence filling the tabernacle and God dwelling amongst his people. Okay, so that was a real quick sort of run through the sort of sequence of events that take place in this book. And if you actually want this timeline, I'll probably send it out in the group me later. I've got sort of this timeline as a whole. That way you can see uh, from beginning to end, okay, what's, what happened in this book of Exodus, okay? So that's the thing. And like I said, we have to approach this recognizing that, yes, this is redemptive history, but all of these things happened, right? When uh, Moses stuck his staff in the Red Sea, it actually split, and the people actually crossed on dry ground. There are some people who today want to say things like, well, maybe... Um, you know, maybe it was just some sort of meteorological phenomenon that caused it to appear to split, and it didn't really. Um, no, if the Bible says that God did it, God actually did it. And maybe God did sort of cause some meteorological event that made it happen, but the force behind that event was God. God is the one who split the Red Sea in order to save his people. Okay? So, now that we kind of understand as a whole what happened in this book, what's going on in this book, we're going to go back and look at a few particular things. We're going to be asking this question, where do we see the gospel, right? We know it's about Jesus, right? We know it centers on the person and work of Christ. But where actually in the book do we see the gospel? And at this point, um, I'm going to need your help. You can go to the next slide. I've got a few uh, verses that I need you all to look up. Uh, will somebody look at Exodus 2, 1 through 4? Thank you, Casey. Will somebody look at Exodus 6, 6? Thank you, Andre. Exodus 12, 1 through 13. Jonathan. Exodus 14, 21. Logan. Uh, Exodus 32, 11 through 14, and then lastly, Exodus 33, 18 through 23. And one more, awesome. All righty, go ahead and read for us Exodus 2, 1 through 4. All right, so again, we're reading about Moses being born. His mother didn't want to kill him, so she hid him for three months, and then eventually she had to do something because otherwise Pharaoh's men were going to come and kill the baby. And so what does she do? She places him in a basket. And it's by placing him in this basket that he's saved from the destruction by Pharaoh, right? And this should call to mind, right, um, what we read about in the book of Genesis where we saw that Noah was placed into an ark and that's what saved him from the flood. In the same way that Noah was placed in an ark and was saved from the flood, Moses was placed in a basket, right, and was saved from the destruction of Pharaoh's men. 
But again, we have, if we understand the central principle, right, all of this is pointing us to Christ. And what we find out in the New Testament that is that it's only by being in Christ that you can be saved from your sins, right? There's nothing else that you can do. You have to be in Christ to be saved from your sins. So in the same way that Noah in the ark was saved from the flood and Moses being in the basket was saved from the uh, destruction of Pharaoh's man, only by sinners being in, placed in Christ can we be saved from our sins, we see that even just this sort of historical narrative telling us about what happened to Moses, it's pointing us to the, re, the, the truth of Christ's gospel. Okay, let's go to uh, Exodus 6, 6. Go ahead and read that for us, Andre. All right, so this is um, after Moses returns to Egypt. He has some interactions with Pharaoh. And after their interactions, Pharaoh begins to oppress the people of Israel even more. And the people of Israel are kind of fed up with Moses. Like, why did you even come back if you're just going to make them, like, you're, you're just making things worse. Like, why are you here? And this is what God tells Moses. Say this to the people. And he says, I am the Lord. And do you notice that that Lord is in all caps? Right? When you see that Lord in all caps, that's a translation of what's known as the Tetragrammaton. Everybody say that with me. Tetragrammaton. tetragrammaton. Yeah. Tetragrammaton simply means, just one time. You can just say it one time. Tetragrammaton, the word literally just means four letters. It's a translation of God's covenant name, the four Hebrew letters, Y-H-W-H, where we get the word Yahweh, the name Yahweh. Okay? So when we see that Lord in all caps, it's not just sort of Lord as in like, uh, you know, you, you hear, you read about lords and ladies in medieval times. It's not that kind of Lord, right? It's specifically God's covenant name when we see it in all caps. So he says, I am Yahweh. I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. There's a real big thing that we see here in this section of scripture. One of the things we see is that this salvation of Israel is something that God is going to do, right? It's not something Israel does. It's something that God does, right? He says, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arms and great acts of judgment. And so in the same way that God single-handedly, monergistically accomplished the salvation of Israel. God single-handedly and monergistically causes the salvation of sinners, right? It's something that God does. God is the one who saves. And we all find out, right, that when God saves, he actually saves. We'll see that, right? When God takes Israel out of Egypt, right, he actually accomplished it. They never went back, okay? Uh, let's look at uh, Exodus 12, 1 through 13. Go ahead and read that for us. Take it. 
some of the blood and put it on two, on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they hid. They shall eat it less than night, roasted upon the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It, it is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No Awesome. I know that was kind of a big section, but here we see the significance of the Passover, right? We see that God was coming to execute judgment against Egypt. And if Israel was going to escape that judgment, something needed to be done. Namely, they needed blood covering their doorposts, right? And so we see that in the same way, Israel needed blood to cover their doorposts in order to be saved from the wrath of God against Egypt. We too need the blood of Christ covering us to be, uh, to be saved from the wrath of God against sin. And not only that, but there's, there's an important thing that we see uh, here in the Passover. Um, the reality is, is that um, God was coming to execute judgment and he was coming for death. But even for Israel, something had to die. What, what had to die in Israel? The lamb, right? And that's the reality when it comes to judgment is that something has to die. There has to be blood. There has to be uh, an atonement that takes place. And God was bringing his judgment against Egypt. And if they did not have the blood to cover them, then the judgment landed on the firstborn sons. And this is significant because when it comes to our sin, there has to be blood. Something has to die. And the reality is, is that for every single sinner, something will die. And the question is, is that has my sin been dealt with on the cross? Did Jesus die in my place? Right? Does his blood cover me? Because if it's not covering you, then the wrath of God will come for you. And that's a sobering thought. It really is. And that's a scary thought. But that's the truth. God was coming to execute judgment on Egypt and something had to die. And thankfully, right, in God's providence, he provided a way for Israel to be saved, namely through the death of the lamb. And for sinners throughout history, since the creation of the world, God has provided a way for sinners to escape the wrath of God, namely through the blood of the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, through the death of Jesus Christ. And so we see that in order for us to be saved, we need the blood of Jesus in the same way that Israel needed the blood of the Lamb. All right, who had Exodus 14, 21? Go ahead and read that for us. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. The people of Israel went to the midst of the sea on the ground, and the waters made a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen, 
Awesome. Again, we see some important typology that's referenced in the New Testament here in the crossing of the Red Sea. But a couple of things that I want to highlight for us. Again, we see that it is God who accomplishes this, right? Did Israel just swim across the sea? Did they just make their way? Did they just do it on their own? No, they needed God to intervene, and God did intervene. And not only that, but one of the things, um, one of the things that's helpful in the book of Exodus is to understand that um, Israel is kind of serving, or excuse me, not Israel. Egypt is kind of serving as a type for sin, okay? So in the same way that Israel was enslaved in Egypt, sinners are enslaved to sin, right? And in the same way, we need God to accomplish the salvation, or they needed God to accomplish their salvation to deliver them from their slavery in Egypt. We need God to, to accomplish our salvation and deliver us from our slavery to sin, and one of the things we see here in uh, the crossing of the Red Sea is that, is that God fully accomplished their salvation. Again, like I mentioned earlier, we don't see Egypt again sort of as a major figure, as a major adversary in the life of Israel ever again, right? And, and this highlights this important principle that when God saves, he actually saves completely all the way to the end, Right? There's, there, there, there's, there was no, um, no Egypt coming and taking them back to Egypt. Like, oh, hey, you were saved, but not really. I'm going to go ahead and take you back to, to, to slavery. They couldn't do that because God fully accomplished their salvation. And this is not sort of, you know, that, uh, that sort of, you know, cheesy, once saved, always saved type of mentality. This is not so much that, you know, and it's not dependent upon sort of what you do. Right? Oh, well, I'm just, I'm just so glad I prayed a prayer. I'm just so glad I raised my hand. I see that hand. Right? I'm so glad I walked an aisle. Right? It's not about that. Right? It's not about what you do. But when God actually saves, he actually saves all the way to the end. Right? Rather than saying once saved, always saved, I like to say once truly saved, truly always saved. Right? So in the same way that God kept Egypt from, in, from getting... Uh, uh, you know, encircling Israel and escorting them back to slavery, God keeps us from uh, returning back to our slavery to sin. Once you've been made alive, there's no going back, right? Once God takes your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh, there's no like, well, I'm just going to get my heart of stone back. No, when God saves, he actually saves, and he saves all the way to the end, to the uttermost, completely, fully, right? And like I said, um, really, is, uh, Egypt on the world stage was never the major power that it once was after God dealt with them. He dealt with them quite handily. All right. Uh, next, Exodus 32, 11 through 14. Go ahead and read that for us.
Awesome. So again, this takes place just after the incident with the golden calf, right? And we kind of talked about this a, a few minutes ago, that Moses intercedes on behalf of Israel, right? God says, uh, just a, a few verses before, he says, now let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may uh, make a great nation of you, right? So God, because of their sin, right, God was rightly, justly, righteously angry with Israel because they sinned. And he, he so much so that he, said, that he tells Moses, just leave me alone, let my wrath do what it's going to do so that I can get rid of them. And Moses stands in the gap. Moses intercedes on behalf of Israel and the Lord relents. And so there's a couple things that we can uh, take from this. A couple ways this points us to the person and work of Jesus. Firstly, um, notice what he says in, um, in verse 13. He says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self that you would make a great nation. Right? Again, we see that God swore by his own self to do this. That the promise God made to Abraham was contingent not upon Abraham, was, but contingent upon the faithfulness of God. And in, and in that same way, when God determines to save, when God determines to show his grace to somebody, it's because he swore by himself to show grace to them. It's not because of anything that we do. It's not because of anything that we do that dispenses God's grace. It's because of what God does. God sovereignly determining on his own that he is going to do this thing, that he is going to show us grace and mercy, that he is going to save us from our sins. But not only that, but we see, we see a comparison um, from the lesser to the greater, right? So we know that Jesus is referred to as a greater Moses, right? We see that in the book of Hebrews as well as elsewhere in the New Testament. Um, but there, there's a couple things that we need to see in Moses' uh, intercession that is lacking, that is not uh, lacking in Christ's intercession for us. Right? So the first thing we see, right, as I mentioned, in verse 10, we find out that God's wrath is burning hot against the sin of Israel. And Moses changes God's mind. But as we've already spoken about, whenever there's sin, there has to be blood. And atonement has to be made. Did Moses make any atonement for Israel? Did something die? Right? We, we find out that Moses implored the Lord, and we find out in verse 14, and the Lord relented. But did something die? Did Israel's sin, was Israel's sin actually dealt with in Moses' intercession? No, the answer is no, right? Nothing happened with their sin. Their sin was not actually atoned for. And so we see, we see from this, again, the, the comparison from the lesser to the greater. So Moses was able to intercede and was able to turn away the wrath of God, but he didn't turn it to something. Right? There was nothing that, that uh, absorbed God's wrath on behalf of Israel. And we find out later in verse 36 that God, that the Lord sent a plague on the people because of the calf, the one that Aaron made. So there's punishment that comes later. Right? There's judgment that comes later because Moses' intercession was insufficient. But Christ's intercession is not insufficient. Again, we've already mentioned when God saves, he actually saves. But the reason that Christ's intercession is, is, is not insufficient is because Jesus did, just didn't change the Father's mind, right? He just didn't turn away God's wrath. No, he turned his wrath onto himself and absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf. And so the issue is not, can he get God to change his mind? No, the issue is, has God's wrath been satisfied? And the answer is that it has. 
And we see that that's, that's, we see that's absolutely true, and he is vindicated in his resurrection. Because had his a sacrifice been insufficient, he would not have resurrected. He would not have risen from the dead. But the resurrection was the stamp of approval from the Father, that this was a satisfactory sacrifice on behalf of my people. And so, like I said, we see some comparison with Moses. We see that Moses intercedes in the same way that Christ intercedes. But we also see a comparison from the lesser to the greater, that Moses' intercession was actually insufficient. Unlike Christ, Christ makes sufficient intercession. Christ makes sufficient atonement on behalf of his people. And then lastly, let's look real quick at Exodus 33, 18 through 23. Awesome. So at this point, Moses is preparing uh, to leave Mount Sinai. He's been up on the mountain uh, communing with God and he's getting ready to leave. And as he's getting ready to leave, he asks God, please show me your glory. And what does God tell him? He says, I will make my goodness pass before you, proclaim my name uh, before you, uh, my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to whom I be gracious and I'll have mercy on whom I will show uh, Show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. The reality is that Moses, because he was a sinner, uh, could not stand before the unveiled holiness of God. If he did, he would have been utterly consumed, right, because of his sin. But what does God do, right? God, but, and and this, is so, this is so awesome. But the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes you, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Uh, so Moses cannot stand in the presence of God without being consumed because of his sin. But God makes a way for his glory to pass by Moses without being consumed. Namely, through being placed in the cleft of the rock and being covered with his hand until he passes by. And so... Again, we understand the central theme, right? All of this is pointing us to Christ, right? And so it's, and we've already mentioned, right? You have to be in Christ to be saved, right? We saw that with Moses in the basket. But again, in order to stand before the unveiled holiness of God, you have to be in the rock, which is Christ. God has made a way for sinners to have fellowship with him. And the only way we have fellowship with him is on the basis of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Specifically, his active obedience, Y'all understand, when I say his act of obedience, y'all know what I'm talking about, right? That's his, uh, his perfectly upholding the law of God during his life, right? He perfectly obeyed God's law during his life. And the reason he did that is because we have not perfectly obeyed God's law in the course of our lives. We're sinners. We break God's law. It's in our nature until we are saved, until God changes our nature, until he gives us hearts of flesh, until he raises us from deadness and sin to walk in, uh, recreated in Christ Jesus for the good works that he prepared beforehand. We break God's law, but Christ didn't. But because Christ did not break God's law, because of his active obedience, we have his righteousness imputed to our account. And it's only by the imputation of that righteousness that we can stand before God's throne. 
And we can behold his unveiled, his unveiled glory because of what Christ did for us. So we see the rock protected Moses, sinful Moses, from being consumed by God's holiness, by his glory. And in that same way, it is the rock of Christ that covers sinners, that protects sinners from the unveiled holiness, the unveiled glory of God. And so we can stand before his presence. We can stand before his throne one day because of what Christ has done. So we've seen what the sort of overview of the book of Exodus is. We've seen specific instances where we see the gospel. And we talked about this, um, you know, I've talked about it with Josh. I've talked about it with Pastor Tim. Um, it trying to sort of take one week, right, one evening and sort of summarize an entire book of the Bible is difficult, right? It's not only difficult to sort of wrap your head around the whole thing, but, but, but even if I, can, if I can get it, how am I able to communicate clearly what this whole book is about? It's a, it's a hard task, right? And even, you know, beyond that, y'all being able to understand what's taking place in this book, it's, it's difficult. But like we started out, if we understand, first and foremost, the book of Exodus is telling us about God. It's telling us about who he is and about what he has done to save his people. And the book of Exodus is centering on the person and work of Christ. And it's ultimately pointing us to him, right? Jesus took Moses and all of the prophets, right? That's Moses being the first five books of the Bible, the prophets being all of the prophetic books. And then you also have the writings. I don't imagine that he didn't cover the writings as well, although that's not what's said in um, Luke 24. But Jesus takes all of the scriptures, including the book of Exodus, and tells us, this is about me. And it's pointing to me. And not only that, but one of the things we see in the book of Exodus, if there's anything I can leave you with tonight, okay, there's one thing that you can take away. Because like I said, this was a lot of information in a really short amount of time. If there's one thing I can get you to take away from this evening, it's that the book of Exodus as a whole is simply a dramatic portrayal of the gospel. Okay? The book of Exodus as a whole is simply a dramatic portrayal of the gospel. Right? How does the book of Exodus start? God's people are enslaved in Egypt. God determines that I am going to save my people. He raises up a savior who goes to Egypt and performs many signs and many wonders and many acts of judgment and ultimately leads his people out from their slavery in Egypt and then ultimately leads them into fellowship with himself. That's the gospel, right? We are sinners enslaved in our sin and there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. But God has sovereignly determined that I'm going to save my people, even though there's no hope for them. And he sends a savior to save his people, namely Jesus Christ, who came and lived the perfect life under the law, died the death that we should have deserved. He was raised again so that we too can be raised to walk in newness of life. And he ascended to the throne as the king of kings and as the Lord of lords to rule and reign in perfect righteousness. And so God sends his deliverer. His deliverer actually accomplishes our salvation. He actually does it from beginning to end all the way through completely and fully. He accomplishes our salvation and he ultimately leads us into a place where we can fellowship with him. And we experience that now with, uh, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We will ultimately experience that one day being bodily in his presence in our resurrected bodies. The book of Exodus is just sort of a dramatic telling of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I hope that that has been clear for you. I hope that we've been able to see that throughout this book, that it's all pointing us to the person and work of Jesus Christ. That everything that we see in this book is about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so let me pray for us real quick. We'll sing a few more songs, and then we'll get out of here for this evening. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for what you have done 
to save your people. Lord, we thank you for the history that is recorded for us in your scriptures and namely in the book of Exodus, Lord, that tells us about what you have done to save your people. Lord, what you have done to fulfill the promises that you made to your people. Lord, what you have done by your own hands, sovereignly determining to save your people. Lord, we thank you that you are powerful, that you accomplished the salvation of Israel, Lord, and that you accomplished the salvation of sinners today. Lord, I pray for these students. Lord, I pray that as we continue the series on the Emmaus Road, I pray that they would see your gospel on full display. I pray that they would come uh, to see Christ as high and lifted up, Christ as glorious and as beautiful. Lord, I pray that they come to see his gospel as sweet. Lord, if there's students who don't know you, God, I pray that uh, through this series, Lord, we would see the sowing of the seeds of the imperishable birth. The imperishable seeds of the new birth. Lord, that you would cause them to be born again, raised to walk in newness of life. Lord, and that they would live their lives telling, proclaiming the goodness of your gospel. We thank you and praise you for all of these things, and it's in your son's precious and holy name we pray. Amen.